Friends, how do we reconcile the constant biblical injunction to fear the Lord with the also constant biblical injunction to love the Lord? Throughout the scriptures and throughout our readings today, both are presented as dispositions of how we're meant to approach God. Both fear of Him, but also love of Him. We tend to think of those as sort of opposites. And so how does that make sense? I've been thinking about fear of the Lord quite a bit because it's kind of confirmation season. We've been having confirmation since the Easter Vigil. And of course, one of the gifts of the Spirit mentioned in the Scriptures is fear of the Lord. And then our first reading today holds up Cornelius as this God-fearer. Peter says about Cornelius, a great compliment. He says, in truth, God shows no partiality. In every nation, whoever fears God and is acceptable to him, or who, who, who fears God and acts uprightly is acceptable to him. Cornelius was what was called in the Acts of the Apostles, by, they were a whole group of people called the God-fearers, because they were sort of loosely connected to Judaism. They bought into some things of Judaism, but not some other things. But they respected and revered the God of Israel, and so they were called God-fearers. So what is this disposition, fear of the Lord, that the scriptures hold up about 30 times as something that's necessary for our approach to God? Because, I don't know about for you, but that has some bad baggage with it. The idea of fear and, and God and fear and religion, right, has some bad baggage. Right? It might be evocative for some of a, of a time in the church when fear was the primary, seen as the primary motive right, for, for growing in spiritual life. Fear of sin, fear of hell, fear of God was, was so predominant. Right? It might be evocative of the kind of fixation or obsession with sin right? that sort of is... Um, and, and not as much attention spent on the more positive aspects of the faith. For some, it might be evocative of a kind of crippling and paralyzing anxiety and guilt that some people were raised uh, in the faith in. So we have to be careful of how we sort of define what fear of the Lord really means. Certainly those aren't what it's about. I like to use uh, C.S. Lewis on this. C.S. Lewis um, distinguishes between dread and authentic fear of the Lord. He says we don't dread God. He says dread is what happens, what you feel when you happen upon a tiger in the forest. A, you, a tiger comes out from around the bush and you're filled with absolute dread. You can only imagine harm coming from that situation. I don't see a good outcome there. Maybe you do. Maybe you love tigers. Actually, more dreadful for me would be um, happening, happening upon like a, a poisonous snake, like a boa constrictor. I'd be filled with absolute dread. Lewis says that's really different than this example. When your parents, who are really good people, walk in on you or discover you doing something wrong. He says, that's fear. 
right? It's someone that has rightful authority over you, discovering something about you that's worthy of condemnation. That's different than the tiger that has just harmed you. But fear in your parents discovering something that you're doing wrong, right? That you know you're doing wrong. It is the fear of the consequences that someone that has a rightful authority over you could level against you because of what they caught you in. Right? Now I have to admit, um, it's Mother's Day, and uh, my mother is uh, probably watching right now, and um, my mother caught me in a lot of bad stuff when I was young. One occasion I'm thinking of in particular, which she will remember, I will not divulge here to this congregation. <laughs> But I will certainly say it felt more like seeing a tiger in the forest, uh, <laughs> right, the dread that I, I felt. Here, here's maybe even a better example. When you're driving, you see the lights go on behind you of a cop car when you know you've been speeding. That's what Lewis says is fear, like an authentic fear, fear that says, you have a rightful authority to judge me in this circumstance, and I have fallen short. That's not dread. We don't dread God. We fear the Lord in the sense, and this is what I would substitute. Every time you see fear the Lord in the scripture, I would substitute the word reverence. We have a reverence for who God is. We have a reverence for who God is. Pope Francis says, fear the Lord is the gift of the Spirit by which we recognize how small we are in relation to how big God is. That I am not at the center of the universe. God is at the center of the universe. God writes the rules. God's the parent or the police officer. And fear of the Lord is a healthy sense that I don't want to fall short of, of the one who has a rightful authority to judge me. That's an authentic, healthy fear of the Lord. Reverence for who God is. Wonder and awe at who God is and not wanting to fall short of that. A couple uh, loose ends to connect here with fear of the Lord. It's interesting that what a culture fears often says a lot about what they value the most. So this is a strange connection, but I've been reading this book that just came out. It's called Nine Nasty Words. And this is strange, but it's on, it's a linguist that I read a lot, who is giving a history of nine swear words in English. It's a really good book, but I'm worried the bishop's looking at my Amazon Prime account and thinking, what, what's going on here? Well, one of the really interesting things he points out in the introduction is that there's been an evolution in which words English speakers think are the worst based on what the cultural values are at the time. So he says, for much of English spoken language, the two worst words in the English language were the D, the D word and the H word. Okay, the D word, you figure those out, I think. Uh, H-E double hockey sticks, you know, uh, and so on. Okay. Because in a religiously infused culture, those two words were the worst thing you could say about someone. That they were sentenced to down there. That's the worst you could say. 
He then says the second evolution is during the Victorian age in which the worst thing you could say about someone is to associate them with a body part or something with regard to sexuality. So in the Victorian age in which there was this big emphasis on all of those things being shameful, embarrassing, the body's embarrassing, you repress those sorts of things. And you can think of the words, right? Don't say them out loud. You can think of the words that emerged then as the most profane words in the English language. He says the third evolution we're currently in, which is any word that's a slur toward a whole group of people, that those have now replaced even the F word, those have replaced even the F word as the most profane word that you can say. I just found that really interesting because in a culture that was totally imbued with religion, the worst thing you could say were the words that denoted these consequences of the H word and the D word. Second thought I had was there's no shortage of fear. I've thought a lot about the last year and how we've, out of a reasonable and understandable sense of fear of this physical virus, we've adapted a million things. But throughout all of it, I've been kind of haunted by Matthew 10, I think it's Matthew 10, 43. Jesus says, don't worry about that which can kill the body. Worry about that which can send both body and soul into Gehenna. Don't worry about that which can kill the body. Worry about that which can send both body and soul into Gehenna. And I've reflected on myself and I thought, if I spend as much time worrying about the demise of my spiritual life or my soul, as much as I've spent in the last year on bodily precautions for COVID, I'd be a saint by now. But of course, I didn't do anything. I didn't do that, right? But so it's not, that's not to say we downplay, right, threats to the body, right? That's not the point. What Jesus, I think, is suggesting, though, is the priority of threats to the soul, right? And that we should be paying attention to those things which can befall that. Finally, the last two Gospels, last weekend and this weekend, say something I don't think we like to hear, and I don't think we like to wrestle with in Jesus' teaching which is that there are certain things that can set us outside and separate us from God's good graces. Last week, the image was on the vine and the branches. You can actually be cut off the vine. This week, Jesus says rather strikingly, if you don't keep my commandments, you can't remain in my love. If you don't keep my commandments, you can't remain in my love. Does that mean God doesn't love us unconditionally? No. God loves us unconditionally, but it's possible that we turn our back and put ourselves outside of the reach of God. It's like a parent who keeps giving to their child who's gone off the deep end. They can keep giving and giving and giving, but until that child turns around, they aren't remaining in those graces. And so that's a frightening prospect. It's one that I think we should wrestle with in Jesus' teaching. Jesus makes clear that we can do some things which separate us from his good graces. doesn't mean he doesn't love us, but it's a call 
uh, to greater reverence, I think, greater fear of the Lord in that uh, understanding. And it's hard for us because we live in a rights culture, right, where we think everything's a right and a privilege, or everything's a right, right? We're entitled to it. And I'm entitled to be in God's good graces, right? Well, that might be a good recipe for a society, but that has no place in the Christian life because we don't deserve anything, right? It's all a gift. So the language of rights, of being entitled, of presumption, has no place right, in the Christian understanding of who God is and how freely he has bestowed his gifts upon us. So friends, I know it's kind of a downer to focus on fear of the Lord on, of all days, Mother's Day, right? But I think it's, it's, it's interesting to wrestle with these concepts because the scriptures, we can ignore the scriptures if we want, but they, they kind of paint fear of the Lord and love of the Lord as compatible realities within our worship of God. I think we should wrestle with that and grapple with what that means. In fact, the book of Proverbs said, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in wisdom is to be able to see the big picture, to be able to see the whole. And I think the author is telling us that to fear the Lord, to revere who God is, to have wonder and awe at who God is, is the first step in realizing our place right, in the world, our place in his created reality, and our place in the mission of what we're called 